somebody approached me with a wish um, or the question uh, if email addre addresses would like to be shared and I did not want to do anything without the people's permission. Uh, so there will be a list at the front desk where you can maybe the, the name list of all the participants where you can either write your email address in there or not if you prefer not to make your uh, email address known to others. Um, so whoever is interested, please uh, take advantage of the opportunity. And uh, David Dill wanted to make a brief announcement too. Could you have the microphone? Maybe first concerning also the email address. I was asked by some of you whether I could send you this, these slides of this morning so you could look at it closer, you know, with all the writings. Um, so my email address, to just give it to you, is d-u-e-double-r at SwissLegal, in one word, SwissLegal, this is the name of our law group, .ch. And then may I write yes. add this? Um, some people asked me whether um, what I gave in the speech is also somewhere written in an article or so. There are not long and thick books of me yet. Uh, on this matter. I, I, I do have two books here. They are not as sophisticated and scientific as the one of Hans. And namely, they are not so English. They are German. <laughs> <laughs> one is Staatsoper Schweiz, which means state opera. Switzerland, you know, the state has a big opera. It's the state house actually as opera house. And the subtitle is Few Stars, Many Statists. <laughs> so this is one. I, I just have one copy of each. If you want to look at it, those, those who read English or if you want to buy it or order it, so it's, it's here. And the second one is um, I have a regular column in a newspaper in Switzerland. And these are sort of anarchic, anarchist columns. And a collection of this is in another book. They are always on Fridays in that um, um, newspaper. So it's Das Wort zum Freitag, the word to the Friday, not to the Sunday, as usual, to the Friday. So this is the second book. Thank you. It's called Basler Zeitung. It's a, it's a, People say it's a right-wing newspaper. Um, they are very open, and then they have, through all parties, columnists. But um, I like the newspaper as such, and, but I'm very independent. Uh, I had one column once when I compared IS or ISIS. Huh? With U.S., I said, well, actually, it's about the same thing. Um, U.S. is just <laughs> U.S. is just bigger, and <laughs> and um, that gave huge protests from the newspaper itself. <laughs>
and then this gave me um, the opportunity just to, you know, to put one on the top because right afterwards these CIA reports came up about torture practices. That was a wonderful example to, you know, insist on it anymore. Okay. Uh, my question is for Stefan Kinsella. It's a question, not an argument. Uh, what is the case for private photos and pictures shared over the internet on Facebook and someone else is using it? What is the argumental basis on that from the IP perspective? What's the justification for using someone using else? Using or do they need our permission without permission? What is the case for? Do you mean under current law or under libertarian Under system? both. Well, under current law, copyrights, uh, photographs are owned uh, by the photographer. And if you put it online, you still own the copyright, but you're giving a license for people to use it for limited purposes, like viewing it on their browser. If you use it beyond that, unless there's a Creative Commons license attached to it, uh, you could be sued. And, and in a perverse aspect of copyright, um, let's suppose you're on vacation and you hand your iPhone to a stranger and he takes a picture of your family. He owns the copyright, but you don't know who he is. So you have this great picture, and you may be infringing his copyright when you put it on your Apple TV. Um, and there's other perverse aspects of copyright. There are cases where um, there's someone takes a photograph, they have a copyright in the photograph, and it becomes a best-selling print or something like that. And someone else will go to the same location and recreate the photo by taking their own photograph and they can be sued by the owner of the first copyright for taking a photograph in that location. Under libertarian law, uh, uh, there would be no property rights whatsoever in information at all. Information is not an ownable thing. Information is the impatterning of an owned thing, a physical material resource. Information is never free-floating. It's always the impatterning of a substrate, your brain, uh, electromagnetic waves, a CD-ROM, a USB drive, a hard drive on a computer, and those things are already owned by someone according to the principles Professor Hoppe referred to earlier. The owner of the thing, I own this physical object, it's structured in a certain way, which is the information. I don't own the information and the phone. I own the phone and the feature, it has certain features. This phone has a weight, it has an age. Doesn't mean I own the age of the phone. If I did own the age of the phone, I would own lots of other phones in the world that were made on the same day, you see? So the, the problem with owning an aspect of a thing that you own is it's a universal that applies to any number of instances in the world, and to own that universal feature of the thing would instantly give you ownership claims over other material resources in the world that other people have claims to. This is the very problem with IP. So if you put a photograph online in a free society, then you have to take the risk that other people might actually look at it and use it. On intellectual property rights, it's a, a funny uh, movement. You reported about it on your um, website where people, some alleged Austrians from Vienna, uh, Mrs. Uh, what's her name? from the Hayek Institute, Barbara Kolm. Uh, she wants to defend physical and intellectual property rights at the same time. It never occurred to her that that is an absolute impossibility. 
to give you an example, I whistle a song, you hear this song and you copy it, you whistle the same, the same melody. Um, if intellectual property rights exist, of course, I would be able to then sue you for having whistled the same song without having received my permission. But that means that I thereby acquire property rights over your own body. That is, I am then an owner of your vocal cords and whatever it is. Um, and that shows quite clearly that either physical property rights exist or intellectual property rights exist, but both of these things cannot exist simultaneously. It is simply a contradiction. And, and uh, an actual illustration of that is the Happy Birthday song, which is in litigation right now. Uh, <laughs> this is literally true. Uh, waiters in restaurants in the U.S. sing a different song because they may be sued for singing the one that's in the movies, which movie studios have to pay licensing fees for. It's another way IP would help movie studios or costs would go down. Uh, and let me, I want to read something Hans wrote in 19, Hans said in 1988 um, on a panel with Rothbard and uh, David Gordon and Leland Jaeger. And this is 88 at the Mises Institute, I assume. And an audience member said, I have a question for Professor Haba. Does the idea of personal sovereignty extend to knowledge? Am I sovereign over my own thoughts, ideas, and theories? And Han said, in order to have a thought, you must have property rights over your body. That doesn't imply that you own your thoughts. The thoughts that can be used by, the thoughts can be used by anybody who is capable of understanding them. So he, Hans understood this with pure praxeology 30, almost 30 years ago. Then I was still young, yeah. Theodore <laughs> um, uh, Dalrymple. First of all, I wanted to thank you for a remarkably funny talk on homicide. And uh, I wanted to tell Professor Hoppe that it was extremely refreshing, refreshing to hear what should be done with politicians. Now, uh, having said that, don't you think that when you say that a uh, few people have asked you who is the best person you've known, and uh, several and many people have asked you who was the worst person you've known, uh, in, in a way echoes the fact that the best person you, you may know involves a value judgment, whereas what we consider evil echoes of a natural sense of law, such that what we libertarians call the non-aggression principle can be naturally recognized by people throughout cultures and, and times. Uh, no, I don't think that's true. Uh, I think, uh, I'm afraid, I think people are just uh, salaciously interested in evil in a way that they're not salaciously interested in good. And evil entertains them in a way that good doesn't. And uh, actually, uh, for writers of fiction in particular, I think it's far easier for them to create villains than it is for them to create good people who are interesting. And those who can 
produce good characters in fiction who are good are actually relatively rare. It's, uh, what you remember is the, the bad person. So I think, there's, it, uh, I think there's more to it than that. You shortly discussed it at, at, at lunch. Um, when I asked um, whether that was a good idea to make this speech into this law day, yesterday we had the economic day, today the law day, so was that because this has to do with legal criminal cases? And no, it's just to entertain you, you said. Um, and nevertheless, I think that there is an interesting connection um, between, for instance, these, these questions you asked, um, um, is anybody bored by this subject? No, certainly not. This is something interesting, you know. And I, I could imagine that there are connections, for instance, that if things like that, terrible things like that happen, I say terrible things because they are, according to our way of thinking, terrible. Um, what, what are the reactions of bystanders of, of, of people who read it in the newspaper or hear it, and there are reactions. And if these are horrible things, there are intensive reactions. And there are things going up, going, going up, yeah, um, that, that are realities, interesting realities. I think these are realities also my discipline, the law, should look at much more closer because that's that's sort of that's natural law in a way. Um, reactions, spontaneous reactions out of certain um, events, may be very same reactions if bad things happen um, in different cultural connections on different times in the long historical run. There may be other reactions that are very dependent on the circumstances of this culture or of that time. But in any event, these are very interesting questions about um, out of what, aus welchem Stoff ist das Recht gemacht? From, Stoff? from what stuff is it from, made? Yeah, yeah, is it made? I mean, is it, it, these are natural laws. It's like gravity, but it's not gravity, other laws, but how are their structures, things like that. I, I could imagine that it's a very interesting broad field of research that is, is not used anymore since the national legislators made these books, you know, where everything is written in and this is enforced just because the state legislators gave it and not because it's law. Therefore, also therefore, Beside other thoughts, uh, other things, I, I found it was a very interesting uh, uh, part also to this subject. Here's another question for Dr. Delrymple, for Dr. Daniels, excuse me. Um, are you sure there aren't some more, more specific lessons to be learned from the murders you knew uh, as respect to ethnicity, intelligence, and conscientiousness? I don't think there's anything uh, to be learned uh, from, uh, about ethnicity. Um, it's true on the whole that the majority of murderers that I saw were not of very high intellectual uh, standards. Because they were poor. Well, um, 
is, of course, a lot. Uh, there's a hidden, uh, there's a hidden homicide, uh, but um, I actually don't think there's much, uh, much to be learned from uh, what I said, except that I, I mean I don't envisage a world in which I would never be able to uh, repeat these stories. I don't think there's a society in which you couldn't find stories like this. Uh, they, they, there can be more or fewer of them. Uh, but I'm afraid I think we are dealing with a very deep, something deeply entrenched in, in human beings. As I said, as I was saying to somebody, the rate of murder in different societies goes up and down. Um, and it varies between societies, it varies within societies. You can examine, um, you can examine, try and find what you think are the reasons for it. But ultimately, I think, I, I'm not at all religious, but I think ultimately you're dealing with original sin. And, um, and we'll not actually get rid of original sin. Sorry, uh, I've got a question for uh, Stephen as well. Uh, thank you for liberating my mind. I, I walked into this room this morning uh, in support of intellectual property protection to a limited degree. Of course, you know, it's out now. Thank you for liberating my mind, thinking that J.K. Rowling is the owner of a slave ship. You know, <laughs> draw the parallel. Uh, but I do have two questions. The first question is, um, they, they, there were some pictures stolen uh, and then distributed on discussion forums around the world of uh, various actresses. Um, I think it would be easier to argue whether the person who stole it um, can or cannot steal it. But uh, once someone saw it on a forum and then distributed thereon, are they completely guilt-free? I mean, you know, according to the principles. Uh, and the second question is, um, and you see this in places uh, where intellectual property rights currently is not really enforced. Uh, if I were to make a movie based on a book written by J.K. Rowling uh, without intellectual property, in, in the world without intellectual property protection, um, and then use her picture, and then use her signature uh, to create the, uh, the, the uh, image that she is endorsing this movie, J.K. Rowling is going to be pretty angry about this. It, 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 does she, should she be justified in her anger that she is now seemingly endorsing this movie? And then if someone else were to approach her for the same endorsement, uh, wouldn't that endorsement then be of less value? Um, yeah, so on the first, the first question, um, in a case with, where a photograph is private and not widely known, presumably the owner of the material substrate that the photograph is on, you know, their, their camera, their computer, a piece of film, a piece of paper in their home. Uh, it's hard to imagine how someone is going to get access to that without committing some act of trespass, but against her owned property, right? If you hack into someone's computer, you're using their computer without their permission. If you break into their home and find the photograph on their desk, that's another act of trespass. So some kind of tort or crime is, is usually committed, or a contract breach in the case of an employee taking photographs from the employer that he shouldn't do according to the contract. So there's some kind of tort, some kind of wrong, and it should be a crime or, or, or an offense. Um, but if he publishes the data online, then everyone who views that 
photograph and copies it is not committing any offense because information, again, can't be owned. Now, if it's only limited circulation so far, I, I might say there's a moral obligation not to participate in making it worse. But once it becomes widely distributed, the cat's out the bag. Same thing with just pure facts. Let's suppose, I don't know, let's say there's a famous actor who's really secretly gay, but he keeps, it, he keeps the fact hidden. Uh, and someone uh, steals his journal or his diary from his home and finds out that he's gay and publishes it online. So now the whole world knows this actor is gay. Now, are people supposed to forget that fact? They, it's just information about the world, right? They know it now. Um, if, if, if a movie studio refuses to hire him for a certain role now because he's got this image and he, lo he loses money financially, could he sue the movie studio for not hiring him? I don't think so. He doesn't have an obligation. Uh, that would go to the damages he is owed by the trespasser who, who, who did the original act. And uh, what was the second question? Oh, yeah. Um, so in such a case, uh, in, in general, taking her, using her photograph and her signature uh, would be permissible because it's just information. Unless it's used to give the impression that she did endorse it, which is a lie. So that could be an act of fraud, but it would be a fraud committed on the customers of the uh, of the person making the movie. So if, if you go see the movie, assuming J.K. Rowling and, uh, had endorsed it, then you would have a, a contract breach or a fraud claim, maybe to get a refund of your ticket or something like that. So, and, and Rowling, all she has to do is just announce, this guy is lying, I didn't endorse it. So her endorsement, her real endorsement of another movie would still have value because people would be able to tell the difference. It's just a matter of fact that it could be discovered. And before, I, I wanted to, um, Back on the photograph question, uh, this is a picture of, has anyone seen this monkey picture, the macaque? Uh, so this is a case where some photographer's camera was taken by this monkey and he took some selfies and they were good pictures and now copyright lawyers around the world are confused about the copyright status because this is, this is, they're puzzling their heads over this, which shows that this is not natural law because um, the author of a photograph is the copyright holder, but monkeys don't have rights. So most people, I think, I think there is no copyright in the photograph. It's just public domain, even though 120 years haven't passed yet. So it's a strange case. And this issue comes up also in, uh, Increasingly, increasingly with technological um, uh, automated pictures like security cameras or maybe the Google car driving around town or this little device you throw the camera up and it hovers and takes pictures. Who's really taking the picture? It's, an, it's a computer doing it. So does Google own the copyright to the, to the images in their street view that their car has taken? It's hard to say. So it which just shows the absurdity of this legislative uh, system and the unnaturalness of it. Can I just ask you a question? What constitutes a trespass? So that supposing someone is legally in my house, uh, is it a trespass if he takes a photograph of something in my house that maybe I wouldn't want photographed? Would that be a trespass? It would. Yeah, I think so. I think, in libertarian terms, the general view of uh, 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 trespass is, would generally be the use of someone's resources, their property, without their consent. And when you enter someone's home, uh, you could say there's an implicit set of rules set down 
by the owner or there's a contract uh, and you're not permitted to use their house in this way. Just like if you loan someone your car, they're permitted to drive it around town maybe for the day, but they're not permitted to uh, paint it another color or do something else with it. So uh, in general, I would view that as an act of trespass, yes. With the law currently, uh, uh, I taking a photograph from someone's house. I I actually don't know if the law would regard that as a trespass. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I don't. I don't know what the law would regard it. I don't think the law has as strict a concept of property and trespass as we would have. So uh, I'm not sure. We have another lawyer. Oh, David, do you, do you know? Well, I would say, but very, you know, just to think aloud. Um, <coughs> trespassing is uh, trespassing against, as we call it, absolute rights um, um, in, in contrast to relative rights. Relative rights are those between, between persons and absolute rights are rights on something, on, 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 on a picture, on, on, on a book, or things like that, and also on his own privacy. And in, in this sense, it's an absolute right, so once you touch it or you, you get in conflict with it, it's trespassing. Uh, I think that it's not my speciality. I think that, like in Europe or in Switzerland, one would look at it. Well, another uh, maybe related thing would be if you confide some information to a priest or, or a doctor or a lawyer, um, and then that person reveals that information to the world. It's not a trespass. It's too late for it to be a trespass. It, it's just some kind of contract breach. So there's an implicit contract between the two or an explicit contract. So it's a breach of contract and damages are, could be owed for the harm that, that is as a consequence of that breach of contract. Yeah, I, if, if I may, a short uh, comment on, on this discussion. Now, if you listen to the examples given, uh, most of them are simply trivial and would never come before a court because it's just things that happen. But when you get a very legalistic mindset such as has developed in the United States, which uh, you have more lawyers than economic bubbles, I think. <laughs> I don't know what, what the standard is for many lawyers, but uh, you have these uh, Small, very small things get uh, blown up into legal arguments, and they are crossing, unfortunately, uh, the world. You mentioned the happy birthday song in, in restaurants. Well, uh, in the Netherlands, for example, and some people from the Netherlands are here, uh, we used to have uh, well, the Netherlands and, and Flemish people to uh, St. Nicholas. Uh, is a, a child-friendly uh, saint. He brings presents to the children, and the presents are carried in in a big bag by a uh, a moor, so a black-faced uh, person. And of course, we have uh, a scandal about this because this is is racism, for some reason, and colonialism and racism. So things which which are never. Uh, a subject of litigation suddenly have become translated into legal categories and they are exploited and now it's big business uh, for newspapers and for lawyers. So when you have these uh, examples of uh, intellectual property rights uh, concerning photographs and things like that, I think it is important to uh, 
stress the, the scale of the damage. Uh, people should be able to argue the degree to which they are damaged. I, I do not follow you saying here is a line and whatever goes on that side uh, is not the business of a, a court of law uh, and whatever is on the other side is certainly the business of the, I think, uh, some judgment and moderation is, is in order. Uh, on a couple of more recent trivial examples, uh, or not so trivial, but um, recently you might have heard, what is the song, uh, the Pharrell song, that's similar to the Marvin Gaye song, allegedly? Anyone know? Robin, Robin Thicke song and Pharrell. Blurred Lines. So they lost a copyright suit from the estate of Marvin Gaye recently uh, because the songs have some similar look and feel or something. Cowbells or something are used in it. Um, and the Minute Work song uh, Down Under has this flute riff in it, which is like 12 notes of it are similar to this old children's song, Cuckoo Sits in the Old Gum Tree. And they were sued and lost. And uh, I think the flautist or one of the, one of the members got so depressed about that, I think he committed suicide later. It's terrible. Anyway. Um, I have two questions um, related to the definition of property. Um, how does it figure into reputation and uh, free speech? In other words, defamation, libel, and so on. Like, where are the boundaries? And the second question is, um, we it's usually assumed that property started with human beings. In other words, property is a human invention, and it's attacked for the same reason. But um, there's a book published in the 1960s by um, Robert Ardrey, the territorial, the territorial Imperative, and the subtitle is The Animal Origins of Property and Nations. Very interesting book. And of course, animals have territories. They mark their territories. And it even has biological effects. So it seems that animals are wired to know when they are trespassing. For example, a smaller enemy on its own territory, a smaller animal on its own territory, will defeat a larger an uh, animal that's trespassing on its territory uh, because of hormonal changes and so on. So it's very interesting, kind of like an animal version of um, the home field advantage in sports. So I'm curious about any comments related to the continuity or difference between animal primitive property and human property? I think that should not be overemphasized these analogies because so far nobody came up with the idea that we should try animals for things that they have done. As soon as we start that, uh, then we might want to think a little bit more seriously about it but I'm waiting for the day when the dog will be put in front of, the, of a court of justice uh, or, or some mosquito uh, will, will, will be tried. Um, in, order to have, in order to have rights, as Murray Rothbard... As as a, but historically, uh, Hans, uh, trials of animals were very frequent in the... 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. And there's a wonderful book about the trials of animals, and they used to try insects. Um, and, there were, and, uh, and there were lawyers appointed, and this is, uh, perhaps they could bring this into America, actually, a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> <But> they, <laughs> 
give more, more employment for lawyers. But, um, <laughs> but pigs and so on were tried for uh, eating, uh, eating the things in the grain uh, silos and things. But I, I mean, I mean, yeah, but, but ob <laughs> obviously to not avail, right? Um, well, they were often executed. <laughs> But sometimes they were acquitted. <laughs> well, of course, now animals are executed without due process all the time in, in slaughterhouses. They're just declared criminals um, legislatively. Um, on the animal issue, I agree with Hans about the, uh, not making too many analogies. However, uh, you can distinguish in property. Property is the legal institution of the right to control a resource. Crusoe alone on his island would have no property rights, but he would still have the need to employ scarce means as part of action. And animals as well do this because they also live in the physical world. So that is probably the reason animals, you know, a dog can, rec can recognize his dog bowl and uh, he has a certain uh, territoriality over it. Uh, but I will say that birds don't try to copyright their songs. So uh, <laughs> on the first question uh, uh, reputation. about reputation rights. So. Uh, Typically, intellectual property is regarded as a patent, which covers inventions, trademark, which is uh, naming or marking, uh, which is actually a type of reputation uh, right. Uh, copyright, which is creative works, and trade secrets, which is the right to, 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 to not reveal secrets. <laughs> um, defamation law, which covers libel and slander. Libel is the written form of defamation. Slander is the oral form of defamation. Uh, defamation is a right to a reputation. Um, and uh, objectivists, for example, believe in that. Rothbard uh, uh, has a great chapter in the Ethics of Liberty called On Knowledge, True and False, where he just eviscerates the entire case. And actually, I believe defamation law should be regarded as a type of IP because it's very similar in the rationales given to it, and it's invalid for the same reasons. As Rothbard recognized, although he didn't think of it as a type of IP, as he pointed out, to have a, a right to a reputation effectively means you own other people's brains because you're controlling what they think about you. So I don't believe there's a reputation right. I don't think people own their reputations whatsoever. May, may, I, may I add, may I add, if I would own my reputation. Um, <laughs> I, I could sue almost the entire world for, for saying something that I feel hurts my reputation. Yes, except the courts would rule you have no reputation to lose. <laughs> Um, the, uh, coming back to the animal thing, I'm, I'm very actually keen that we shouldn't use analogies from the animal world because in the animal world it's so extensive that you can find an analogy for absolutely anything, really. And if you look at the preface to Dawkins's first book, uh, The Selfish Gene, um, there's a man called Trivers who's a very clever biologist, but he actually says in that preface that work on the social bees, wasps, and ants demonstrates that there is no difference uh, between the status of male and female. Now, uh, we can argue, well, you can say what you like about the relations between men and women, but it can't possibly be based on what the bees uh, and the ants and the wasps do. So uh, I think uh, 
actually this kind of uh, reasoning is, uh, is completely false. And once, once human consciousness and self-reflection comes in, it changes things absolutely and makes a, a, a categorical difference between man and the animals. Let me say one more thing on reputation. Uh, because there is defamation law now, uh, I think it makes the public more gullible and more credulous because if someone tells an outrageous story about someone, which is a lie, people are more likely to believe it because they figure, well, if it wasn't true, then they would have been sued for, de for defamation. So in a, in a world where there were no defamation laws, people would uh, be more, more uh, uh, people would take these things with a grain of salt because they know people are free to lie, basically. So. Add some, but, but then you try to, to, to say something for half an hour already, but may I add just, just one thing to this issue of animals? I'm not that skeptical against these analogies. Of course, I would also say that there is a categorical difference between bees and human beings. But I think, for instance, human beings and chimpanzees are much closer together than chimpanzees to the bees. And um, bluntly said, I would say um, apes have law. They, law. They, they have law structures. And um, there are, you know, you can, you can observe it, beobachten, um, uh, look at it, you can, you can make um, experiments um, or look how they behave in their, in their group. And there are situations at least just to look at, maybe that not answers yet the whole question, but there are situations where they are conflicts. Um, a bit what I showed this morning here. There are conflicts. One goes to the other, takes something away. He shouts. Others come in. And then there's something like a court. There is a third one, maybe some with uh, authority in the group. And um, both sit before this third independent person. And he shouts at them and makes something, and then this conflict is, is solved. So this happens. Of course, there is a lot to interpret again of it, but I think just when you try to um, find the natural law somehow out of the nature, then at least it's very interesting to look at, at people that are close to us in, in you know, brain capacity and everything, but are not us, because once we look at us, we are always biased in a way. But we look at colleagues of us that are quite close, but not the same. Maybe we are more objective. I'm, so I'm, just I, to add, I, I know this will, I won't be your world. Yeah, I know so. Um, and uh, maybe I mean, that would be you know, a, whole, a whole discussion. But uh, that I, I would rather tend to such a this is just our description of things, using human categories to describe uh, entities uh, of which we simply do not know if these categories apply to them. We describe it like this. And I find these descriptions also very instructive, interesting, and so forth. I read these things too. But all of these things say there is an independent party and they have a fight and so forth. This is all 
using our knowledge that we have about humans and then metaphorically projecting it to animals as well. There is absolutely no way of ever proving, of ever showing that these metaphorical descriptions are actually accurate, dis accurate descriptions. In order to use human categories, you must be able to somehow speak. You must be able to somehow explain yourself and so forth. And none of that can ever be observed. So, but we happen to disagree on this. There, That's fine. There, there are a few things, if even the two of us, even oh, the ones, we, are, we, are, we are all always at these, at these panels. We are the two anarchists, you know, close together. And so it's fine that we have some, some scope of We beat it out tonight. <laughs> can, can, we can, settle, I comment? can we settle this democratically? <laughs> Consent, you know, out of the conflict comes the solution. That's okay, I, I, my vote counts for five. <laughs> Could I comment on, on one thing? Um, there is um, a tendency to look at children as they're growing up. And even Mises says that children sometimes act as savages and they come to uh, some conclusions from children. Even uh, once a, a person who's originally from Cuba, he told me, look, children, when, when they have something, they immediately say, mine. You know, so he's saying that that's their nature or that's the nature of humans. And, and I think a lot of conclusions uh, people reach about uh, how humans evolved, they, they are from observations of children. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yes, of course. Babies can't act. They learn how to act. The first things are just motions. Um, you learn how to act. Babies can't speak. They learn how to speak. Uh, and of course, we can observe that at some point this transition, this transition occurs. Um, yes, from the study of children, we can learn a lot. We can also learn, uh, if you look at Jean Piaget's studies, for instance, on uh, when children are capable of performing mathematical operations, when they develop some sort of consciousness, when they develop the idea of you did something right, you did something wrong. Um, all of this proceeds in, in certain stages, which are relatively stable stages, but, uh, but not all people go through all the stages at the equal, uh, at an equal speed, but they all go through them in the same order. Uh, and some never reach the highest, the highest stages of, uh, of human capabilities that other people can perform. Yeah, um, if I can just make a quick comment on, on, on private property and human action before I ask the questions. Uh, it seems to me that private property is an unavoidable consequence of any human action, uh, even in the Garden of Eden where there's no scarcity at all. Um, out of an infinity of apples, the minute that, that I stretch my hand to pick an apple, that particular apple is mine by the very fact that I have acted on it. And then if I proceed and peel the apple or cut it into slices, that makes it even more mine. If there's no property, there will be no 
motivation for human action. There would be no human no, purpose for there, human action. No, there would be, in the Garden of Eden, there would be only goods. Uh, means, things that I recognize as means in order to achieve certain ends. But it only makes sense to talk of property if conflicts arise and we have to define what is mine. And yes, but once I pick that apple, this particular apple is mine. If you were to take it, um, there would be conflict. But in the, garden, in the Garden of Eden, th that question would never arise. Um, well, if I've peeled the apple, if, I, if, yeah. if, I'm the, okay. if I'm the only one on the island, the question never arises. I simply do it. That's it. Okay. Uh, two questions: one for Stefan Kinsella. Um, the question of IP has been fairly controversial, even within libertarian circles. Although I think um, the consensus is probably moving in your your direction. Rothbard, for example, thought there, there is a case for for copyright. Uh, as opposed uh, to patent, con a case in contract law for copyright. Um, what is the state of play amongst libertarian thinking uh, uh, thinkers now? And in, and, and, and in particular, have you had this discussion with, say, Ayn Rand and aficionados? Because Ayn Rand was almost paranoid on the question of intellectual property in favor of uh, intellectual property. And the other question is for Tony Daniels. Um, with your contact, personal contact with a number of murderers, has that affected in any way and in what way your thinking on the death penalty? Uh, all right. Uh, the, I know some objectivists who are now against intellectual property, and I know some a few anarchist objectivists. So not all objectivists uh, here even to this. So I've actually got a web post where I list the few objectivists I know who have come around on IP. Um, my impression is that most libertarians never thought about IP very much until it became a big issue after the internet in 95. Um, Ayn Rand was in favor of it, I think because it was in the Constitution and because she was a novelist. So she was self-interested and she revered the Constitution. A uh, hundred years ago, so there was a big debate in Liberty Magazine between uh, uh, like Tack Cack and uh, uh, J uh, Benjamin Tucker about IP. Uh, there was a big debate about it in the, eight, eight, uh, the, the 1800s between free market economists who were opposed to it because they saw it as intruding into the market. Um, and uh, Lysander Spooner even was insane, <laughs> insanely bad on IP, even though he was good on so many other things. Um, he, like, uh, like uh, uh, Galambos, who's probably the craziest ever on IP, um, believed in perpetual copyrights and patents, so they would last forever. So we would be paying royalties now for the use of fire to cook food and the wheel, and it, it would just be we would we would die as a race because no one could could move. You'd have to get permission from everyone, and we would just die off. Um, my impression is, as libertarians started looking at this issue, by and large, they're opposed to it. There's a few empiricists, uh, utilitarian-minded, and minarchist types, and constitutionalists who are still in favor. So my impression is virtually all anarchists, of the left anarchists and the uh, anarcho-capitalists, pretty much all against it. Most Austrian libertarians are against it. Uh, left libertarians seem to be against it. Um, radical libertarians seem to be against it, by and large. Um, there is still some debate, but uh, honestly, I get asked all the time, hey, would you do a debate on IP? Who would you suggest on the other side that's any good? And I, I, don't, I, re I literally don't know anyone who has a good argument for IP, not even one that's plausible. Um, Richard Epstein mouths off about it, but he, he doesn't, he doesn't pr 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 
He doesn't produce any empirical evidence to back up his empirical case. There's a, an objective named Adam Mossoff who keeps threatening to unbosom onto the world the, the, the true objectivist argument for IP that Rand never really gave, and we're still waiting to see something that makes sense. But their argument basically is that uh, rights come from the creation of what they call values, and you own the values you create. They say they, they don't have a proper understanding of the subjective theory of value, that we don't own values. We demonstrate that we value things by, by acting to, uh, to achieve them. But value is not a substance or a thing out there in the world that you own. You could call a, 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 an object that you produced a value, but you own it because it's an object that you produce. It's got nothing to do with the ownership of values. Um, so I think that's the current state of play. Machlup was against it, Hayek was against it, Mises was against it. In the Austrian tradition, almost all economists were against uh, intellectual property. Yeah, and Rothbard, Rothbard's uh, argument on copyright is, is confused. I don't think he, when he used the word copyright, he clearly did not have in mind what the word copyright means. Copyright, because he, he, his argument included a mousetrap, which is an invention, which is, which is what patent law covers. And he, his argument looks like it's a contractual argument. He's, I think it, it's, it's a little bit confused, but I think the best way to understand it was he was envisioning a, a web of contracts that people would make. They would, they would put limitations of use on objects they sold, and he thought that somehow could bind third, third parties. But I think he lost sight of the fact that the information is separable from the underlying own thing. And he should, he, should, he should have seen that because of his good argument on defamation. If he would have applied his defamation argument to the IP case, he would have, I think, cleared up his mind on the copyright issue. Tony? Uh, well, being a doctor in prison did affect me in the sense that um, uh, the doctor had to attend uh, an execution. And in fact, he had to make the... Uh, uh, the person fit for execution, <laughs> um, which is an interesting concept. <laughs> I mean, uh, a part of the fitness was the person was in his right mind, but it, but it couldn't be so that he learned from experience. <laughs> so uh, it was all very odd. Um, and I didn't think I personally uh, could have uh, participated in uh, ex an execution, and I couldn't really, and, and it wasn't just an aesthetic uh, objection, uh, and I don't think I could have advocated that somebody else did something that I thought I couldn't do for ethical uh, reasons, which is not to say that uh, you didn't meet people who were so terrible that you thought that, uh, that they deserved to die, but that's a, a different thing entirely. Um, and uh, as Hamlet said, uh, treat each man after his dessert, and who should skate whipping? And um, so I, I, and I, I'm against the death penalty. Um, but it wasn't really actually meeting uh, the, uh, the murderers that put me off the death penalty. Okay. Can I ask the next question? Oh. Yes. Um, my question is of a, of a strategic nature. Uh, Dr. Hoppe, you uh, spoke about uh, a counterculture. Uh, to my knowledge, that is actually a Marxist term uh, by which um, through um, injecting confusion in the public debate and especially the hollowing out of terms, uh, you make uh, 
possible allies to be enemies, divide et empera, as you have said. You have said, how can, in your view, the libertarian movement in the next 20 years um, regain um, the, the paradigm? Because this is a very interesting meeting, but it is a very isolated phenomenon. And I'm very interested in, in to learn how we can reconquer the culture, or maybe it's not possible, I don't know. Well, yeah, I indicated what I think can be done. You can all go home and try to do the same that I did. Um, and, uh, and, there, and, and thereby create an, uh, a wider audience uh, being perceived by the outside world, uh, ridiculing um, the, the, the present dominant culture. I don't see any other ways uh, to do it. I mean, I, don't, I do think that I have had some effect uh, with what I have done. And I think that can be imitated. It should, uh, I would uh, want it to be imitated. But as I said, it is not an easy thing to do. Slow process, yeah, and and of course, David Durr has of course indicated um, how by assembling people of uh, like-minded people, uh, how they can possibly proceed uh, by initiating legal procedures and creating enough publicity. For instance, you need also people like the people here who are useful in order to create the publicity, to have newspapers reported, all sorts of blogs and internet sites reporting about the legal proceedings that we will start against the Schweizerische Eidgenossenschaft. Well, that, that's uh, to, to take this on. Um, that, that could be an example, besides many other examples. Um, Maybe what is also important to have in mind uh, to such questions is it's really a fundamental change in a way, and it's it's that fundamental fundamental that it's almost impossible just you know that the group comes in and says now we want to change the world and then it's done. Actually, in the aftermath, I think one can only say oh the history the. The big stream of history I, I showed this morning, um, in the end, it took a better turn than one was afraid it, it would. You know? There are many signs that go in a, in a very bad direction to this one world state, um, when it's about you know, tax collection and uh, fight against terrorism, then even USA and Russia and China work together. You know, so, so these are horror scenarios. Um, so there is a strong stream in that direction. And in a way, we can just, in a way, in one way, I come to the other, we can just hope that it won't go definitely in that direction, that the course will change before. And under this view, then, it's worthwhile, very much worthwhile to try to, to um, to strengthen those tendencies that goes in that direction. So only if there are tendencies in that direction, and I think one, one can find it in, 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 
groups like that and in other discussions that there are tendencies, that there are ways of thinking in that direction, then it's, it's very useful to enforce them, to strengthen them, to, to discuss with people about them and to try to find um, fields of specific actions such as, for instance, this, this, this lawsuit or, the, or other possibilities. Okay, I think we have reached our time limit. Um, <coughs> ask the other questions privately yes. afterwards. I thank you for coming. I'll see you tonight a little bit later.